Welcome back to part two of the podcast with Jim Urbina. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our newsletter, which goes out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's the easiest way to stay up to date with all of uh, what's happening in the golf world. Really easy to subscribe. Go to www.thefrydag.com and uh, sign up in the newsletter block right there on the front page. Thanks, and here's part two of the podcast with Jim Urbina. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. In terms of, uh, you obviously have a, a, a passion for, for golden age golf and golf in general. Like, um, when did you know you wanted to be a golf course architect? I, di- I didn't know. I, I, I had no idea. I never played golf. I didn't understand golf. I was like Seth Rayner. You know, the famous quote that McDonald talked about Seth Rayner. He didn't know a tennis ball from a golf ball. That was me. And I'm very thankful to Pete Dye, who I got my career started with. He embraced the work that I was doing for him, the creativity that he allowed me to do as a shaper. I started as a shaper. Uh, I knew how to draw because I was a high school drafting teacher by trade, but I, I started as a shaper. And I didn't think I wanted to be in this golf business. But the more and more Pete Dye sent me around looking at his golf courses, Old Marsh and PGA West, uh, all these golf courses he had done, the golf club, uh, uh, on and on and on, the more I started understanding the beauty of it. And his son Perry Dye sending me around to other golf courses, allowing me to go to Cypress Point. Uh, the Dye sending me to St. Andrews in Scotland. They hooked me, man. They hooked me big time. And they hooked me because... They showed me a different way to build a golf course. Not that I knew any other way than just hands-on. I realized that the only way to do it right, as Pete Dye told me, was to do it yourself. And because they taught me from the ground up, I understood and I appreciated how these things were built. And to go on to work at Pasa Temple and learn from McKenzie and uh, Rainer Courses, uh, Yamas Hall, I did work at Mid-Ocean, uh, San Francisco Golf Club, Garden City, uh, the Bob Link Club, on and on and on. Recently, Sankety Head uh, in Nantucket, Emerson Armstrong, one-off design. I started to realize all of these guys had the same passion. And it's addictive, and it's, it's all-encompassing. And it's funny when I sometimes I send emails or text out at 2 in the morning because I'm thinking about golf. I'm all wrapped up in it. And you want, you say, well, why are you wrapped up in it? You didn't grow up in the game. Well, because the way Pete and his son Perry shared their experiences with me, they allowed me to travel. They allowed me to see new and, 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 uh, and beautiful places. Uh, Cypress Point when I was a punk, the National Golf Links before I was, uh, before I was 30, before it was fashionable to travel and, and look at architecture. 
and it just became all-encompassing. And because I like working with my hands, I like building things, it was a perfect scenario for me. And for them to allow me to draw, uh, do grading maps, uh, work in the office, do drainage plans, it was all just a big uh, uh, foundation that I had no idea what I was doing, but I was doing the best I could do because that's what my mom and dad taught me in the little town I grew up in. Whatever you do, do it well, work hard at it, and uh, the benefits will will reap. And, And they have, and I've had the chance to meet some wonderful people, and all because... Pete allowed me to seek out and look at different golf courses, and he embraced me, he trusted me, and he let me build and be creative. And who doesn't want to be creative? And who doesn't want to build something cool that they could stand and say, I built that? And who doesn't want to be out in the open air and the open space and to travel and to see beautiful places? I mean, who doesn't want to do that? Well, I didn't think I did. And 37, 38 years later, I'm still doing it, and I still have that passion. And the day that it burns out is the day I'm done. But whether it's an interview a couple of days ago uh, or working, uh, I'm working with Mike Kaiser on uh, some projects, uh, working with uh, new, uh, new designs, working with restorations, it's the passion. And when that passion's gone, you know, I'll probably be done. But uh, maybe sometimes it's too much passion. <laughs> I can't sleep at all. Yeah, uh, but I, that's how I got started. I end up doing the same thing. I am I, like I you get you get crazed. Um, but um, you get crazed. It the a lot of people say that we're in this second golden age, and something that seems to be to me a common theme is Pete Dye. With yes, Oma. I mean, and I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for what he did. Well, I think Pete Dye was, people always ask me about the Mount Rushmore of golf course architects, and Pete Dye should be up there. And you know, you're going to say, well, that's just because you work for him. Well, Pete Dye taught me about detail and taught me about being hands-on. And look at how many people he spun off. Uh, Look how many people work for him. Lee Schmidt, Brian Curley, Bill Coor, uh, the list goes on and on and on. And I think about all of the people who got that chance to work for Pete, and I think, wow, we all had that same uh, uh, attachment. Uh, Pete putting his hand on your shoulder saying, you know, this is what we're going to do here and trust in you. Uh, Tom Doak working for Pete Dye. Uh, pretty cool pl- Pretty cool. That we all had a chance to work for uh, for the man. We've talked a little bit about McDonald and Rayner and National, and I'm a huge Rayner nut and McDonald nut. And one of the things I've heard people that like to diminish Rayner and McDonald are they say that their use of templates were unimaginative. What would you say <laughs> to that? I would laugh. <laughs> I would laugh. And the reason I would laugh is because people who say they're unimaginative don't understand why they came about, where they came from. And, yes, it's easy to say, oh, just another Redan. Or it's easy to say, just another Alps hole. Or, 
a hog's back or a double plateau or a short or an Eden. I could go on and on and on. But the intent of the strategy, I was just talking to somebody about uh, an article that uh, Charles Blair McDonald wrote in uh, uh, Golf Illustrated, February issue, 1907. And he described in detail each hole and how he would recreate these wonderful holes that he brought from the U.K. He selected the best holes of the U.K. and brought it with him, leading many... Uh, leading authors at that time, Harry Varden, James Braid, Horace Hutchinson, and John Lowe, to discuss what the best holes were. And all McDonald was trying to do was spice up the architecture in America because he thought it was very bland. And he wanted to bring these golf courses to America to show, to showcase, paraphrasing, these wonderful holes in all of their glory, these ideal holes of the U.K. and Scotland. And so when people talk about unimaginative, how many different times did Rayner use the short in different topographies, shore acres? I mean, the short at shore acres versus the short at the National versus the short at Yeamans Hall that I just recently redid this past spring and summer they're all different. Yes, somebody would say, yeah, they all play 145. But the style of the green, its location, the microclimate, the wind, the trees, the open space, unimaginative, yeah, you could say they're all short, and you could say they're all Redans, and you could say they're all Edens, but their location, the intent, the location in the round of the routing, uh, the topography that was used, the uh, the uh, the width of the fairways, uh, the type of ground it's played on, rock versus sand. I mean, unimaginative, what I think is unimaginative is bunkers that are put out at 310 yards left and right in the fairway uh, on every hole. That's unimaginative. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um I uh, I think the other thing with Rainer, like, you know, having played Shore Acres so many times is like, you know, you think about some of the greatest holes at Shore Acres, like that jump to mind are like 11 and 15. And it, those yep. are holes yep. that are just, you know, cut into the natural landscape and aren't templates. You, you won't see those holes anywhere else. No, no. And yes, you're going to see the Redan, but it's in a different presentation. Mm-hmm. And you are going to see the Eden in a different presentation. You're going to see the road hole, but it's in a different presentation. Each one of them capturing the essence of the idea, but slightly dif- uh, differing in the way they're presented. And that, to me, that's the imaginative way that they were applied to the landform, which Seth Rayner, Charles Banks, Joe uh, Barton, all were involved with, uh, as well as McDonald. They were taking the intent of those holes, spicing up golf in America, and trying to recapture what was good for strategy. And they just took it across the country, applied it in different locations, in different ways. And we all, I enjoy them. Maybe not everybody enjoys them, but I enjoy them for their intent and their uh, uh, opposite of unimaginative, imaginative ways they were applied to the topography. I mean, what Brian Palmer has done at Shore Acres, the superintendent, to, to, to present that golf course 
is off the charts good. And, you know, that's the key to these golf courses. It's the superintendents involved with places like Shore Acres. Uh, Scott Pavalco at, uh, the, at the, the Bobble Link and Brian Moore at Glenview, the clubs I'm familiar with, uh, Chicago Golf Club. Uh, all of those guys bring out the character of those uh, quoted unimaginative holes. I, every time I hear that word now, I'm going to think of this discussion. <laughs> it's uh, So do you think that uh, the perception of templates would be better if they were labeled as inspirations instead? You know, that's a good, that's, I've always thought about what templates mean to people, what, what the ideal holes mean to people. I think template holes are, are so um, vague in, in their, in what they mean. I mean, when you think about what McDonald and Rayner brought to America in the early 1900s, I'm sorry, McDonald, Rayner just helped McDonald uh, create these uh, ideal holes. It was it was a time in, in America when architecture was so simple, simple in its presentation. McDonald and Rayner brought these holes uh, to life at the National Golf Links of America, the Lido Golf Club, the Yale Golf Club, and people started to appreciate maybe what architecture and golf could could uh, evolve to. And it's no different than what the 70s and 80s, I'm so, or even post-war uh, 50s and 60s brought to America and golf the 70s and 80s with major amounts of dirt moved. And even when you talk about the 90s, the late 90s when the Sand Hills was built and the new minimalist style of golf architecture, it's no different. McDonald and Rayner were, were bringing those uh, inspiration holes, as you say, uh, different than the 50s and 60s, what golf uh, provided America. The 70s and 80s with TPC Sawgrass and these these clubs that were being built with massive amounts of dirt moves, and now the 90s with Coor and Crenshaw did at the Sandhills uh, and uh, minimalism and what they ushered in. So it was all different styles uh, and just a different part of the history of, of, of what uh, golf was uh, evolving in America. Yeah, I had Mike Clayton on about a year ago, and he said, when you think about it, like, you know, the strategy of great golf holes is really simple, and it's almost impossible for a hole not to be uh, inspired by another great hole. Like, it's almost impossible to come up with, like, a truly unique, original idea. And I think that the only way that you could is if you brought in somebody who had never played golf, uh, which is what Pete Dye used to always appreciate about me, that I didn't play golf. If you brought somebody in that had not seen a 500 or 1,000 golf courses, if you brought somebody into the business that didn't understand that good golfers were different than, than uh, bogey golfers, that is the only way that you would bring in a new perspective in golf design, somebody that was completely oblivious to all the, the patterns, all the strategies, all the different things that uh, had occurred from uh, the early 1900s to uh, today. You'd have to be a complete newbie, as uh, some people would call them, and then maybe you would find something completely different. It's funny the a lot of like disruption that happens with like tech companies. Like, I, the founder of Uber was never a, a cab driver, and so that tells you that they saw something different and not the same old thing. And I think you know, I I, I made a comment uh, about this uh, young man, uh, Zach Blair. Uh, he's going to create a golf course in Utah, I believe. And to me, he has 
probably one of the better chances of creating something different because he won't have these preconceived notions that golf course architects, golf course designers, golf course builders have. I'll be curious to see what he turns out. <laughs> Zach is a, uh, a pod regular. We, uh, I was out at, at his uh, site a couple months ago walking around looking at how holes could fit in. So you had a, a couple of newbies. And I'm curious to see what it turns out to be. If, I, if I'm in the Salt Lake City area, I'm going to uh, sneak my way up there and, and uh, take a look. Yeah, I'm sure he'd love to have you. Yeah, I imagine you can't really, if you don't have the superintendent on board and involved, I, you can't really have a successful restoration or, or build. Might as well pack up and go home, Andy. <laughs> because... They are the key to the unlocking the playability of these wonderful ideas. I'll never forget walking around with, uh, I had this discussion with uh, a friend of mine, David Wilbur. Uh, I never have, I, I re- remember having a discussion about Ken Nice at the Pacific Dunes and Old Mac. And for all the golf courses at Bannon Dunes Resort, he was the lead growing architect, uh, along with Troy Russell at Bannon Dunes. He bought into the notion of what made these golf courses good and what would make the architecture good, and, and that was fescue. And that same goes for uh, Shore Acres and Brian Palmer and Scott Pavalco at the Bobby League. They bought in to the architecture that was being presented and the way they were going to play the golf course, the bounce and roll that had to happen in order for them to be uh, uh, to realize their full potential. And... When we redid the uh, greens and, and fairways and, and historical bunkers at Yeamans Hall this past spring and summer, it was Brooks Riddle and his staff, wonderful staff, that embraced everything that we were doing and we were going to do the best to make the mowing lines the right way, the greens the right way, the historical bunkers the right way. And if they don't buy in, Andy, as I said, pack up and go home because uh, it, it has to be a team effort as well as the committee. Everybody has to buy into what you're doing. If there's detractors, it's not as good. If there's naysayers, it's not as good. But if the team is all one, shapers, construction team, assistants, superintendents, the team. Andy, I can't tell you how many times I want to talk about the team. Take the I out of it and put we. We, the team. We at Shore Acres. We at at all of these places I've had a chance to work at, they are the key to make an architecture happen. And I just don't think enough of them get credit. Yeah. I, you should talk to more superintendents. I know. I, I, uh, it's something, you know what I need is I need more hours in the day. <laughs> <laughs> if you can, yeah, if you can I find, me, find me 30 hour days. I, uh, but it, it, I, I definitely agree. plan to do more in, in, uh, 2018. Um, I interviewed Kyle Hegland, uh, the Sandhills superintendent, uh, a couple months ago, and he said something along the lines. I don't want to misquote him uh, uh, that you know almost every super should be an architecture nut, um, and if they aren't, they aren't, aren't necessarily doing their job to their best of their abilities. I, I you know I don't want to misquote it. It was there was a lot of context around that. So, but do you believe in that? You know, I believe that a superintendent has to have the working knowledge of his or hers de- design, the Golden Age design. C.J. Penrose and, and uh, Justin Mandon, C.J. Penrose at Sankety and Justin Mandon at uh, Pasa Temple, are both 
recapturing the essence of a golden age design. If CJ doesn't understand that that uh, Emerson Armstrong, this was his only golf course he ever designed, and uh, he and he didn't understand that uh, Emerson was trying to bring Lynx Golf to America, and he had this wonderful site that he could do it on. If CJ didn't understand that, and CJ CJ Penrose only knew that you know uh, uh, you you water and you fertilizer and you mow and you don't understand what Lynx Golf is then I don't know if that he could recapture the essence of Sankety Head. And the same for Justin at Pasa Temple. If Justin didn't understand who Alistair McKenzie was, uh, then he probably wouldn't be so uh, uh, tolerant of the amount of work that he has to put in to keep the look of the bunkering and the greens at Pasa Temple uh, so well uh, uh, appealing as far as the look of them. And when he painstakingly took Pasa Temple through the drought years and created this firm and fast playing conditions with Brown outside of the playing surfaces. If he didn't understand where Alistair McKenzie came from and what Pasa Temple should stand for, then he maybe may not have been so successful. So I believe uh, uh, the statement that an arc, uh, superintendent should have at least some understanding of golden age design so that he understands the strategy and layout and how they were maintained in that era. So I agree with them totally. Yeah, speaking of Justin, I got to see the new water facility and meet him when I was out there a couple months ago, and that, that's pretty cool. So he's not just a super now. He's like a, a water treatment specialist. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is all superintendents are water management people, and uh, I think Justin took it to the next level. So with Old Mac, building Old Mac, you you got to build a modern-day Rainer McDonald, you know, representation. How much different yep. was it from restoring a Rainer? And then conversely, what it, what have you learned from building that you now take to your restorations? One of the – there was two pivotal points in the, con, in the design and construction of Old McDonald that were, uh, for me – for me, personally, turning points. The first was we had a, a group of consultants that were helping with us uh, with the project. The late George Botta, who, who what a wonderful man, um, Carl Olson, uh, and Brad Klein. And we were standing on uh, just in front of this uh, fire road or access road that would be the future Redan at Old McDonald. And I had the group together, and I, and I asked a question to all of them. It was a sunny day, mid-afternoon. I'll never forget this, Andy. I said, how much does this golf course have to look like the ideal holes that McDonald and Rainer built at the National? And almost to a man, uh, Tom was standing there as well, almost to a man, they all said, it doesn't. And that was a philosophy that was that now shaped the way we were going to build the golf course. I spent you know 190 days there, uh, over 185, 90 days there. I was going to now take that ideal about it doesn't have to, but it does have to have the inspiration behind the hole. You know what did the short hole stand for? Well. You can't build a short hole and make it 210 yards long, right? 
Well, some people some people in the seventies thought that was the right thing for short holes. <laughs> That's one of the funniest things when I'm restoring uh, Rainer courses. When some people they say they want to make it longer, and I said, "Well, then we'd have to change the name. <laughs> we'd have to change it to longer, not shorter." Yeah. And so that usually shuts uh, everybody up, uh, not in a, a not in a demeaning way. So that was the first. That was kind of the first principle. It doesn't have to look like, but it has to play like. The intent of the strategy. So that was like, it was like, oh, great. Now the Redan doesn't have to be exactly like the Redan. And the Eden doesn't have to be exactly like the Eden. It should have the Strathbunker. It should have that. Uh, that's important in the Eden. And the Double Plateau should have Double Plateau Green. But how it's configured, you know, that's not that important. And the second important day for me was the day that Ken Nice, myself, and Mike Kaiser walked the first three shaped holes at Old McDonald. I'm sorry, the four holes. So we looked at the we looked at Sahara's third green. Bruce Hepner had shaped that in there. Wonderful job. We walked the hogs back the fourth hole, uh, and the green had been shaped on. I can't remember who did that one. We got to the fifth hole, and Tony Russell was just finishing shaping up. Tony Russell is a famous shaper of, of, of Coor Crenshaw fame and, and, and Bannon Dunes fame. He had just finished all the little contours that I had asked him to put in on short, and then we walked to the sixth hole. And when Mike Kaiser walked those four holes, my heart was like coming out of my chest because I knew that he was going to respond either one way or the other. One way he was going to say, this looks great. Or two, he would say, I don't know, maybe this, maybe we should think about, you know, something here or there. Uh, and I, Mike Kaiser has all my due respect. He's the great enabler. He allows you to be creative. After we walked those fourth holes, he looked at those green sites. He looked at what was there and he said, is this what McDonald and Rayner would have done? And I said to Ken Nice and him, I said, yes, I believe so. They didn't exactly look like the ideal holes, but they were representative of that. And he said, I like them, Jim. And from that day forward, it was like, we are going to build something really cool here. And with the help of talented shapers, our in-house construction crew, uh, a talented group of people assisting us with the ideas. Uh, it was Mike Kaiser's willingness to be creative and to allow creativity with the interpretation of those holes, the ideal holes, the Eden, the, the short, the long, the hogsback. And we put our own, we put our own spin on them. And that was the key. Does That's, that answer your question? Yeah. 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 I, I love it. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, it it's not a replica course, but a representation of representation. Just those two conversations set forth the the, the gears and the rotation and and the movement to create Old McDonald. Yep, it's uh, it, I I I love the uh, the idea of uh, and it seems like it's the I haven't been there yet, but the right land and the right setting for you know, a really good course that represents the ideal holes of the British Isles. 
and with the wind in your face playing the the long uh, in, with the with the breeze in your face it feels long but the way the unities were put in uh, one of the things i was uh, adamant about the unities i call them other people don't like that term but one t where everything's mowed at one height i started doing that at pacific dunes uh, just one teeing ground, and then they would move the blocks around. There weren't separate uh, uh, tee blocks. Uh, I love that presentation, that look, and we took that to the next level at Old McDonald back in 2009, and Mike embraced it, everybody embraced it. The one tee doesn't make you feel like you're playing way back and that you could move up farther and farther, and you don't feel like you're moving up a tee. You're just playing on the ground, and that was what allowed this golf course to play the way it did, and that's the imaginative part that Mike Kaiser allowed us to have. And uh, he, he is as much to uh, uh, credit as anybody, uh, the enabler, allowing a creative freedom. Um, so let's, uh, let's get into some overrated, underrated. Are you ready? All right. All right. You just got to pick overrated or underrated. Um, okay. Front to back sloping greens. Uh, underrated. Donald Ross. Underrated. Underrated. William Flynn. Oh, boy. I would say underrated. Yeah, he's my... And I say underrated because I think some of his golf courses away from Philadelphia are overrated, but overall I think he's underrated. So, you know, you, you went underrated on everything. Tell us one thing that's overrated. The way golf courses are maintained. That's a good one. They are so over-maintained that I think sometimes we lose a grasp of what golf is supposed to be about. That's, uh... Does that fit in the overrated? Oh yeah, I I think that I I agree. You know, we agree about too much stuff. So. <laughs> it's uh overrated golf courses because they're over maintained. Um, do you really have to clip every little tree with with pruning shears? Do you really have to edge your uh, your bunkers every week? Well, yes, I know the expectations of golf courses are that if they are kept they are well uh, maintained and superintendents uh, unduly have to do these things because people are mistakenly uh, driven by the look of the golf course. If it's pretty, if it's kept, it must be in good condition. It must be healthy. But sometimes I think that's overrated. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think like, especially when you get to like a municipal level, the strive for great green conditions it, it hinders what happens is that that goal then loses especially with golden age design like they lose Agreed. the fairway lines or the green sizes because they're trying to get fast greens with limited resources limited resources making the over maintained golf courses so overrated we 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 aren't going to have much uh, debate because we think about things nope. the same way. But um, nope. 
Jim, uh, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll have to do do uh, another one at some point in uh, in the future. And uh, really, uh, really excited to see more of your work. And um, thank you. Congrats thank to you. on all the success. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on and uh, allowing me to ramble on sometimes. <laughs> Rambling's the best. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you. 